Right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the History in 20 podcast. And today we have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Carlos Conde Solares, who is Programme Leader for BA History at Northumbria University in Newcastle. So his interests lay largely in late medieval Spain with a focus on interactions between the spiritual systems of Christianity, Judaism and Islam. Carlos has also appeared as a guest in Al Jazeera, France 24, TRT, amongst other TV channels. And as well as being a well-respected published academic, he's also written opinion pieces in El Mundo, The Globe Post, Chronica Popular, The Conversation and more. So welcome to the podcast, Carlos. It's great to have you here. I'm delighted to be here uh, with you, Jester. Thank you very much for having me. No problem at all. So today we're going to be discussing Christopher Columbus and sort of who he was and the discovery, in inverted commas, of the Americas. So the first question I have, and I think a lot of viewers, will, like listeners, will probably have as well, is who was Christopher Columbus, Carlos? Who was he? Well, that's a, that's a very difficult question uh, to begin with, because as you know, uh, Christopher Columbus is a very mysterious character. We know relatively little about him, and uh, and it is uh, it is quite a, a peculiarity when it comes to studying this uh, this particular historical character. He seems to be very um, uh, you know, from the minutes that we have of the uh, of the courts of Castile and the way that he introduces himself. We know that he has some very powerful connections in the court of Castile. The Duke of Medina Celi seems to know him well. Um, some of the uh, some of the higher advisors of the Catholic monarchs seem to know who this guy is, but uh, we don't know much about his family, and uh, we do know about his descendants. And this in part because one of his ambitions was to build a lineage for him, that is, was to to leave a legacy for his family, which uh, leads me to think that perhaps he came from a, a relatively low social extraction. Uh, there are several theories about where Christopher Columbus was from. The most uh, popular one is that he was from Genoa, from uh, from Italy, and uh, and this is purely because he was a, a sailor, and a lot of sailors were from Genoa at this time. When we look at his actual writings, when we look at his uh, logbooks, many of which have actually been transcribed by other people later on, which makes it a little bit difficult to, to gather where he was from through his language, we uh, we see that he's someone who seems to to speak. Um, and who seems to write in a sort of uh, universal, international type of Spanish that was fairly common amongst the people of the sea. That is, uh, there are turns in Portuguese, there are turns in Catalan, there are turns in Italian, but in general, uh, it's quite difficult to place Christopher Columbus and to know who he was exactly, which makes it makes him all the more fascinating as well. Definitely, yeah, that was, that was a great answer. So for anyone who might might not know the sort of period we're talking about is like the late 15th century here obviously 1492 being the key year um and another key couple of figures from that era and that year in particular were the uh, catholic monarchs in spain at the time so i just wondered if you could talk us through who those catholic monarchs were right so uh, fernando of aragon fernando ii of aragon and isabel the first isabel of castile the Catholic monarchs were responsible for bringing together the Christian kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula in 1492, uh, putting an end to uh, Al-Andalus with the fall of uh, Granada on the 2nd of January of that same year of 1492, also with the Alhambra decree, which meant uh, the end of Judaism in the Iberian Peninsula, also in 1492, and finally on the 12th of October, 
by sponsoring that expedition by Christopher Columbus that ends up in America. The first expedition of Columbus ends up uh, in the Bahamas on the 12th of October of 1492. A lot of things happen in 1492 under the reign of the Catholic monarchs who are also uh, responsible uh, under their watch the, uh, for the establishment in 1478 of the Spanish branch of the uh, Inquisition. Uh, perhaps the most uh, the most uh, powerful of late medieval early modern uh, monarchs and uh, two characters that are also very very interesting because neither of them was meant uh, to be the heir to their throne uh, in the case of um, uh, of Fernando of Aragon it was meant to be his half brother Carlos of Viana to inherit the kingdom in the case of uh, of Isabel uh, she arrives in the throne because of a conspiracy against her uh, against Enrique IV, uh, who's uh, deemed incapable of ruling, and uh, Isabel is placed there as a young, uh, as a young woman in place uh, of him. Uh, the nobility expecting her to be a sort of uh, of puppet uh, that they could rule, and uh, ending up being completely the opposite. That is one of the most uh, characterful monarchs of the medieval early modern period. Uh, two incredibly interesting characters, both of them, and uh, two characters that had a very powerful set of propagandists uh, writing for them as well. So uh, we have both uh, a historical image of the Catholic monarchs, but also very much a romantic one. That's another great answer, as as per yeah. And uh, I know you mentioned they sponsored his voyage, Christopher Columbus's voyage. So why did they sponsor his expedition, um, and why why did they choose him in particular? to sponsor his voyage to the Americas or his voyage of discovery, I suppose. It was a relatively low stakes operation for the Catholic monarchs. This, to put it in context, what was spent in the uh, in the expedition that eventually discovers America and that triggers the encounter of civilizations was actually much less than the Catholic monarchs had actually spent for the dowry of their daughter, Catherine of Aragon, for her wedding in England, that is, it was relatively small money. They just provided one now, one big boat, which was the one that Christopher Columbus would captain in this uh, expedition. The other two, the caravels, the two uh, caravels of the Pinthon brothers were actually sourced for uh, privately by Columbus. It was a relatively low stakes uh, thing to do. And uh, it has to be understood in the context of this um, uh, of this frenzy for re-establishing the uh, trade routes with the Far East, with China, with the Indian subcontinent, with Japan, in uh, the context of the uh, presence of the Ottoman Turks in the Mediterranean. That is, the um, Iberian kingdoms, uh, Portugal in particular, had been doing the uh, circumnavigation of Africa in order to reach the, uh, the Indian subcontinent for quite a few years. The uh, Kingdom of Castile had already established itself in the Canary Islands, of course, and uh, Christopher Columbus was, uh, he had this idea, he was a navigator, he was uh, a geographer as well, and he had the idea that it was possible to reach the Far East by means of uh, navigating west, that is, he thought that the Earth was much smaller than it actually was. Of course, he didn't account for the presence of, uh, of America, which was, of course, unknown in the own world at that time. Uh, but uh, it was uh, an expedition that perhaps uh, promised, uh, well, to find perhaps a few more islands like the Portuguese have found in the Azores, like the Spaniards have found in the Canaries, and uh, perhaps uh, even the possibility of establishing a new trade route with the Far East. That was the idea. And of course, what was to unfold was uh, unexpected, to say the least. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the big ship that you went on. Am I right in thinking that's the Santa Maria? 
yeah, it was the Nao Santa Maria. It was the bigger uh, of the of the three of the three boats, and that was captained by Columbus himself. The other two boats were captained by two local sailors from Huelva, from Palos de la Frontera, where the expedition uh, left, which were the Pinzon brothers. Yeah, right. So just going on, delving into the boats a little bit, like the three boats that went there. What sort of do we know about life on board the Santa Maria and those other boats? What was life like for those sailors on board? Well, very difficult and very difficult not just because of the logistics of the trip. Uh, to give you an idea, they uh, they depart uh, from the uh, from the Canary Islands from La Gomera in early September, and the trip to uh, eventually the Bahamas takes over a month. Um, what made it possible, and this is one of the calculations that Columbus got right, was that they departed from as far south as possible. That is, it was much easier to navigate the ocean sea, which is the way in which the Atlantic was known um, back then, uh, from as far south as possible because of the prevailing currents of the Atlantic. So they had departed from uh, Huelva, from Andalusia, and uh, they had restocked uh, in uh, the Canary Islands. And then, uh, well, that journey took about uh, over a month. It was a very difficult one. And uh, one uh, anecdote uh, that I think is very telling is that Christopher Columbus himself kept uh, a double accountant of the uh, of the journey itself. That is, he kept uh, a double log, one for himself, in which he annotated the actual distance that they had uh, that they had traveled, and another one for the crew, in which he vastly underestimated how far from shore they actually were, because he knew that there was no way that they could return. So uh, it was a one-way trip, this one. But because he knew that uh, his crew was not uh, particularly well-versed in navigation and was not particularly disciplined either, a lot of these people were people who had um, who were um, uh, uh, had just left prison, they were uh, criminals in some cases, very poor people, and he knew that there was always the, the possibility of a, of a rebellion on board. So he tried to, uh, well, he lied to them, basically, in order to, uh, to make sure that, uh, that that didn't come to, come to pass. Uh, they reached the Bahamas on the 12th of October uh, when they are at the, very, um, at the very end of their ability to navigate any farther. So it was a very, very difficult journey. Yeah, and it seems like the, the voyage like, landed at the right time. Um, with obviously supplies running out, they've only had so much of everything on board that could sustain the travellers. And that was my next question, actually, where, where he landed, which you answered there being the Bahamas. Um, so when he landed, what did he discover when he was there? I think we spoke about when I did the module at uni, there was two um, different types of tribes people or something as well. So if we could just discuss what he discovered and the types of people that he found, that would be good. Yes, when he arrives in, in the island that we believe is Wanaani, in one of the small uh, Caribbean islands of what today are the Bahamas. The, this is an inhabited island, and uh, Columbus and, uh, and his crew describe the natives as the Tainos, because this is a word that they utilize when they are communicating with the Europeans, with the Christians, with the Spaniards. A Taino, in their language, meant uh, we are the good people, we are good people, and um, they uh, seem to communicate in what we can only imagine was perhaps uh, sign language and the body language that uh, there were people in other islands called the Caribs who uh, were hunting them, who were hurting them, and who were the evil ones. This, of course, was something that was um, uh, that, that was very uh, convenient uh, from the point of view of the European, of the Christian uh, mentality, you know, that dichotomy between the noble savage, between the, the good people, the people who inhabit this sort of paradise on earth, and the evil ones 
from whom they need uh, protecting. This is something that um, works very well, for instance, with the uh, with the uh, feudal mentality. Okay, these are people that might need uh, protecting. These are people that might be uh, loyal servants because they are good people. And what we know about that uh, civilization is that it was relatively primitive, uh, have nothing to do with the uh, very advanced and very sophisticated civilizations of the continent that are going to be encountered later on, the Azteca and the Inca in particular. And uh, we also know that this was uh, uh, well an agricultural civilization and the receding civilization uh, as well. That is, it was a civilization that uh, was uh, already receding, that was already much smaller than it had once uh, been uh, because of the uh, of the resources that they were uh, utilizing and uh, what the islands could actually provide for them. As we know, uh, with the introduction of European diseases, they are going to be decimated to the point of, uh, of disappearing. These are the, the Tainos, those uh, indigenous tribes of the, uh, of the islands of the Caribbean. Yeah, that's and that's a really sad uh, result of what 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 happened and sort of foretelling of what was to come later on with European colonialism. But when when they arrived and some of the things that they discovered, I, I seem to remember you mentioning they had to the people who were writing about it, the Spanish people, they had to invent words of things they'd seen, like they'd never seen waterfalls before. I just thought that was an interesting point. You might be able to elaborate on. Yeah, it's fascinating to read the uh, not just the logbooks of Columbus, but also the first the early chronicles of the natural historians like uh, um, like Oviedo, for instance, and of other uh, chroniclers who uh, find themselves in a situation where they have to describe for uh, the purpose of uh, of showing the Catholic monarchs or their sponsors what it is that they are doing and what it is that they and where it is that they are because they have the beginning remember they don't know where they are and um, and they have to describe those landscapes they have to describe the, the the fauna they have to describe the the plants that they see and a lot of these things are new that is they don't really have uh, a European uh, framework with which to uh, to explain what it is that is in front of them. And quite often they resort to magical language. And um, obviously if we jump uh, four or five centuries into the 20th century and we look at the, uh, at the literature of the boom of Latin American literature, of magic realism, of Garcia Marquez and all of these authors that present uh, the extraordinary with a very uh, down-to-earth language, a lot of it is actually inspired in the works of the early chronicles of the conquista that is that sense of wonder because they have discovered uh, a new world a place that they didn't know existed and a place that looked very different can you imagine from the plains of castile and extremadura where many of them came from which uh, with these landscapes that you see in central spain where it's all you know yellow fields as far as the eye can see the sky and nothing else and all of a sudden all of these places all of these very exotic places uh, turn up in front of their eyes and uh, they, they seem to lack words really to describe what they uh, what they are seeing what they do have is an incredible sense of enthusiasm which uh, is transmitted into those sources that's and that's just incredible like that shows how sort of powerful that was for those people who who arrived there having never seen anything like it in their lives that they have to resort to this like you said this magical language to to properly describe it so Upon their return now back to Spain, my next question is, how was Columbus perceived back in Spain and Europe at the time? Was he hailed as a hero or was he seen as more of a, a conqueror? 
the fate of Columbus was uh, a very common one for uh, many of the conquistadors that were to come later. Columbus himself was not a conquistador. He was a sailor. That is that's what he was interested in. And in fact, he's criticized by some of the uh, of the settlers, by some of the people that he brings in his expeditions, because uh, he just wants to keep discovering new islands. He just wants to keep sailing. He doesn't want to settle anywhere. That is because that's where he feels at ease. You know, he's a navigator. He's not a governor. He's not a conquistador. He's not a, uh, a man of the military. He just wants to keep seeing places, basically, and uh, and planting the, 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 the Castilian standard in those places. That's what he wants to do, because he thinks that that's what his mission is. When he returns, and obviously having been given the, uh, well, the responsibility of ruling the places that he's... Um, uh, that he's discovering, uh, well, he's found one thing clearly. That is, uh, he's someone who's not a good um, a people leader. Um, very early on, the Catholic queen, uh, well, of course, she, she forbids uh, slavery. Uh, she tries to to ensure, by means of uh, uh, of her of her testament as well, that the indigenous people are treated with uh, with as much love. As, uh, as a Christian is capable of giving, as he writes in her testament. Yet uh, Christopher Columbus um, doesn't, uh, doesn't quite follow those uh, guidelines. He's going to antagonize the settlers. He's going to antagonize um, the, the, the clergy, the people who are there, in order to ensure that the orders of the Catholic monarchs are, uh, are observed. And in fact, he's going to return to Spain after his third voyage as, uh, as a prisoner. That is, um, his... Um, uh, his fortune is very similar to that of uh, of other conquistadors. That is, uh, many of them felt uh, entitled, uh, of course, you know, to, to to much more than they were given by the Spanish uh, monarchy. The Spanish monarchy realized that the extent of the power that these people could have in uh, in a place that was much bigger than Spain itself was something that the Spanish monarchy needed to control. That is, they needed to ensure that those places were actually ruled from the Iberian Peninsula rather than from uh, the new world itself. And in those dynamics, we have already the beginning of the Creole movements that are going to lead later on, several centuries later, to the movements of independence, which are largely uh, movements of rebellion of the white uh, settlers rather than of the indigenous people against the monarchy, uh, precisely because of those dynamics uh, where, where, where the metropolis tries to rule uh, a centralized empire rather than uh, allowing the settlers to, to do their own thing. Yeah, so that was that's really interesting you mentioned there how it led to sort of centuries later movements of independence. So I'm just going back a little bit before that and sort of we've kind of discussed what we can learn from his expedition, but was was his expedition a forerunner for early European colonialism? Like when you look at the sort of 19th century, 18th, 19th century, the scramble for Africa, could you trace that back to like Columbus discovering the, the Americas, is that something that a link can be forged there or is it just completely different? When we uh, when we look in particular at the, I mean, there's a very good historian uh, who passed away fairly recently, John Elliott, who's perhaps the best, um, uh, well, or, the, or one of the very few who have actually taken uh, seriously the task of comparing the Spanish and the British Empire. And, uh, and he has compiled a series of, uh, of, of British sources that tell us very clearly that uh, the British had um, the experience of the Spaniards very much in mind when it came to uh, to the expansion of uh, of Great Britain uh, across uh, across the world, uh, both as a positive and as a negative uh, example. That is, they paid very they paid attention to what um, to what problems the Spanish monarchy had in uh, in America, and uh, they tried to learn from those when it came to to their own 
expeditions. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, the um, of course you have to put some nuance into all of this. No, uh, the British Empire is going to operate uh, through um, uh, well through uh, trading companies and and so on, and uh, and it's going to to establish itself in parts of the world that are perhaps much more uh, well, uh, developed that, uh, economically than was the case of the Caribbean, for instance, and, and that leads to a very different dynamics. Uh, but without question, with um, 1492, what we have is the is the first uh, iteration, a fortuitous one at that, the first iteration of uh, of Europe uh, expanding itself uh, beyond uh, beyond its own realm, beyond its own uh, continent, without question, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's a great answer. So I've just got one question left for you, and that would be, what is Christopher Columbus's legacy? What legacy did he leave behind, and how is he perceived today? Well, a very controversial legacy, as we know, across the world. In the case of America, we have Columbus Day, we have the Dia de la Raza in Mexico, and we have, on the 12th of October as well, uh, in Spain, still the National Day of uh, Spain, which is also controversial in Spain, as you can uh, as you can expect. Uh, the remains of Christopher Columbus today are most of them in the uh, mausoleum in the Cathedral of Seville. But before that, they were in Havana, they were in Valladolid, they were in many different places, uh, which um, which tells us, you know, that, that throughout history, his legacy has been one um, that has been linked to, to colonialism. Of course, you know, he's the one who gives name to the to the concept itself, and uh, also. Uh, is someone whose uh, whose legacy has been celebrated by by others, as we know. Uh, still, there is a, there is a major both in the USA and in uh, in the Hispanic America. There is a still um, there is a still a celebration of sorts of uh, of the events that took place, but a celebration that's nevertheless very uh, very uh, nuanced. That, that is, I would say that over the past uh, half century or so, and especially after the fifth uh, centenary, after 1992. There's been a revision, really, of the legacies of Columbus uh, in light of indigenism, and that's how you were referring at the beginning of the of this interview about the discovery you know, with the quotation marks. They encounter civilization, you know, that perspective of the indigenous, that decolonization of the curriculum that we have in universities right now. That is his, uh, of course, his uh, legacy remains uh, a very uh, controversial one. Uh, most of the positive uh, aspects that the Spanish Empire left in America were left. Uh, after Columbus rather than by Columbus. And uh, as such, well, he's a figure that has remained uh, controversial, but nevertheless, an incredibly important one because most uh, events in history tend to happen in circles. That is, they tend to happen several times. One thing that's never going to happen again is the discovery of America, for sure. So that makes it a very, uh, a very unique historical event. Yeah, and that's a fantastic summary of Christopher Columbus. So just before I stop the recording your site's place on record thanks to carlos for coming on you've been a fantastic guest and um, it's a privilege to have you on to an academic who's so well respected in in the field and you're a great lecturer at uni as well so i'd just like to say thanks again carlos for coming on thanks to you you were a fantastic student as well and i'm really glad that you're doing this it's super entertaining thank you very much cheers so that's it for this episode everyone we'll catch you at the next one cheers bye